I know not all of you have kids, but all of you have been a kid at one point. And there's this stage of life where children, they just naturally let you know what they want for Christmas, right? I'm in that stage of life. I have a 12-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a 7-year-old. And my wife, Brittany, and I, we never have to go to our kids and say, what do you want for Christmas? They make it well known to us. I mean, we've got lists and lists and lists and lists all around our house on different devices, on pieces of paper. And uh, to make matters worse, my daughter Avery also has her birthday in the month of December. And so we are well aware of the desires of our kids' hearts. It's interesting if you're in adults or if you interact with adults, uh, some of us, many of us, we kind of get locked up when we're asked what we want, right? We're not quite sure what we want, or at least we don't want to admit what we want, right? Like, ah, that sounds like a big ask. That seems sort of selfish. I just want world peace. Maybe you really mean that. I don't know. Just donate to a charity on my behalf. Maybe you mean that. You might mean that. It also might just be some self-protective, like, well, I don't want to seem selfish. I want to seem godly, so I'm going to say this thing. I don't know where your heart is at. Uh, I know where my heart is at, and I want a lot of things, but I never admit it. Um... (laughs) Come on, people. <laughs> Laugh at me, otherwise I feel judged. <laughs> it's true. I, I want a lot of things that I never tell people what I want. I struggle with that. And, and there's this reality, like wants and desires are an interesting thing. These past couple of years, I've been doing a lot of searching of my own heart. What are my deepest desires? What are, what are my wants? What are my longings? A few years ago, a, a friend and mentor of mine asked me, Andrew, what do you want? And I had no idea how to answer it. It seemed like a wrong question. It seemed like an unspiritual question. Like, it doesn't matter what I want. And the work that I've done the last couple of years, I realized God has wired us with deep-seated needs and wants and desires. Now, sometimes these wants and desires of ours are just fleshly, and, and they're not life-giving. And sometimes they're, they're godly, and they, they're put there by God. And, and all of these needs that we have, they, they come from God. And I think it's interesting that as we grow up, we, we kind of lose this innocence and this freedom and this, this ability to just speak with God like a father and tell him what's on our heart, tell him what our desires are, to tell him what our wants are, to tell him what our needs are, and just trust that he's big enough to handle it, that if they're wrong, if they need, need to be corrected, or if they just need to be granted, that he can handle that. That's what our kids do, right? They just come to us, and they just tell us everything, and then as a parent, we have to make a decision. Is this a, is this a, a want or a desire or a need that I can grant that I can give them or not. What we see in John chapter 17 is Jesus, like a child, in freedom with God the Father, pouring out his heart, telling the Father what he desires, telling the Father what he wants. And you guessed it, like Jesus, his desires, his wants are holy. They're right. They're good. They're not self-seeking. But the point here is, is that Jesus models for us in John chapter 17 what this relationship that you and I are supposed to have with God the Father ought to look like. Where we can come into his presence, where we don't have to edit ourselves, where we don't have to change what's going on, where we can reveal the deepest desires and longings of our heart to God the Father. Look at John chapter 17 verse 1. It says, When Jesus had spoken these words, That's summarizing John 13 through 16, which we've been in for months. He lifted his eyes up to heaven. This posture of dependence, looking up like a child, looking up to a parent. He says, Father, Jesus himself, God in flesh, postures himself 
in submission and obedience and dependence to God. He sees God as Father. He says, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. He sees himself as a son. This is our position for, before God. We are sons and daughters before a holy, loving Father who welcomes us into his presence and wants to hear from us. So we've been looking at John chapter 17 this month, and we looked at John 17, 1 through 5, the first week in December, and looked at how Jesus prays for his own glory, how he pours out his heart to God the Father, asking that he would be glorified, that he would be remembered, that he would be one with God the Father. And then verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples. We looked at that last week. And now this week, today, we're going to look at verses 20 through 26 and see specifically what's on Jesus' heart as he prays for you and I. Jesus' prayer here in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26, reveals three things that he wants for us. Look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only. And if you remember the preceding passages, he's praying specifically for his immediate disciples. Peter, James, John, Andrew, those guys and their extended families and, and the people that he did life and ministry with when he walked this earth. God in flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. He had real relationships with these people in the first century, in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. And so he prays for them in verses 6 through 19. And then here in verse 20, he's shifting his focus from those immediate disciples to me and to you, into your grandparents, into your parents, into your children or, or future children or grandchildren or future grandchildren. Anybody who would follow in the ways of Jesus as a result of the ministry of these first immediate disciples. He says, I do not ask for these only, being his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, 2,000 years later, on a different continent, different language, different culture, different context. We're proclaiming Jesus. We're believing in Jesus. We're trusting Jesus because of the Holy Spirit being granted to the early disciples who continued to proclaim the word of God. It's amazing. And so here Jesus has us in mind. He, he prays for us and he's in the presence of God the Father and he's asking God for what he wants. He's just, he's just pouring his heart out to God. And, and Jesus' wants are, are matured. They're godly. He's not self-focused. He's not thinking about his earthly well-being, his earthly possessions. He's thinking about others. He, he's prayed for the glory of God in himself. He's prayed for the glory of God through his disciples and the unity and the protection of the disciples. And now his prayer reveals three things that he wants for us. And the first thing that he wants for me and you, for all of his followers who follow in him after the ministry of the disciples, is our unity. Like if you want to know what God wants, it's right here. Jesus is God in flesh. Colossians chapter 1 says, He is the image of the invisible God. So oftentimes a prayer that Christians ask is like, God, tell me what you want. Tell me what you want me to do. Tell me where you want me to go. Tell me how you want me to live. Number one we see here in Jesus' prayer for us, and this is kind of, you know, to just take three things from this prayer that's kind of reductionistic. He wants more for us than just these three things. But it's this amazing look into the heart of God revealed through the prayer of Jesus, the Son, to the Father, where he exposes his desire for me and for you. So if you want to answer that prayer, God, what do you want? Number one, he wants our unity. 
He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Verse 21. That they may all be one. You know what one means in Greek? One. (laughs) Not that we would be fractured into many different parts, but that we would be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. I talked about this last week, the hypostatic union that Jesus is God and man. It's this mysterious nature, this mysterious unity. Jesus wants our unity, and our unity is modeled after the unity that God had, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit have among themselves. He says, I ask that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. And so our unity is found in our union with God, We had a baptism a couple weeks ago. We baptize people into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's this immersion. It's this union into relationship with God the Father, with the Trinitarian God, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus prays for our unity. He wants unity for his followers. And that unity is modeled after and it finds its power and its hope in the very union that God has within the Godhead and then the union that he baptizes us into, the family that he adopts us into, the the community that he saves us into. He says, uh, he's praying in verse 21, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Part of our evangelism, we talked about this earlier on because in John chapter 13, Jesus has already taught the disciples this. That the world will know that you are my followers when you love one another. It's amazing. In John chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. It's this amazing show. It's modeling unity. He's breaking down walls of division. He's humbling himself. He's taking off his outer garments, showing intimacy with the disciples. He stoops down and he washes the disciples' feet. Jesus is the master. The disciples are the servants. And, And he flips that upside down. So this is how unity is found in humility and bending down and serving others who are unlike you, who think differently than you. And there was incredible diversity among that group of disciples. Incredible diversity in background, in the ways that they saw the world. And Jesus models unity by washing their feet. And then he teaches them in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, to have unity. Look, look at it with me one page over. Actually, so in John 13, 1 through 20, he washes the disciples' feet. Then he talks about Judas betraying him. And then look down in verse 34 and 35. He says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So in the first part of John 13, Jesus models unity by washing the disciples' feet. After that, he he verbally teaches them, he instructs them to be unified, to love one another. And then here in John chapter 17, he's praying to God the Father, pleading for our unity. This is an incredible model for you and I to follow in life, actually. It's like to do what we ought to do, number one. And then to teach what is true and right, number two. And then to plead and pray for God to do his thing, number three. Oftentimes in like evangelism world, we'll talk about, you know, proclaim the gospel in word and deed. 
and, and I don't want to get too uh, systematic here because I think that can sometimes be unhelpful, but it is interesting that Jesus models in deed and then word. He does what he means, he does what he wants the disciples to do, and then he tells them what he's doing and why he's doing it. He washes their feet, a deed, models it, he teaches, he proclaims, be unified, love one another, serve one another. He, he verbally tells them what he already physically showed them. And then he goes to God the Father. God, would you make this possible for them? Would you grant them unity? I want my children to be unified. God, hold them, keep them, unify them. Verse 22, he says, The glory that you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. Our unity is found in their unity, imparted to us. Verse 23 says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. We, church family, are baptized, which means to be immersed in, to be hidden in, to be, to be enveloped in the union of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You are not an individual. You are not a lone, range, lone ranger Christian. If you walk with Jesus, if you've given your life to him, you've been baptized, and if you haven't been physically baptized yet, I encourage you to be baptized. Reach out to me. We'd love to do that. We might have another one here in January because there's a few people who are interested in it. It's just the physical sign of what happened when you trusted Jesus, immersed into his life, into his love, into the union that God, Jesus, and the Spirit have, and now you're in that union. And that union, that unity, is what Jesus wants for me and you. And it's found in him and nowhere else. See, we tend to, and, and it's like Christmas, I don't want to beat us up with a negative message. But we tend to, at least in my observation of American Christianity over years and, and really probing my own heart, we tend to strive to find unity around things that are in addition to Jesus. Like, we really want political unity. If you're a conservative, you really want other people to be conservative. I'm like, man, I'd get along with them better. If they saw it my way, if you're a liberal, man, I, people, they just need to change how they see it, and then we could get along. If you're moderate, don't care. If these people would stop caring so much, we'd get along better, right? Maybe it's worship styles. I'm, I'm so grateful to God for this church that like, we haven't allowed division to happen over worship styles, but man, this happens in churches so much. Well, we're traditional. And churches around our country are divided over worship style, actually. Like, one church, multiple worship styles, and like, all the people who like this kind of music go to this service, all the people who like this kind of music go to this service, and they never interact. What kind of unity does that speak of? None. Disunity, right? Our preferences lead the way. Preaching style. Like, people break up into churches over preaching style. Exegetical. Do you go verse by verse through the Bible as if that's the only godly way to preach? And I got news for you. Jesus didn't preach that way even. I think it's a great way to preach. I love doing it. That's why we've been in John for a year. But that's not like 
Don't divide over that, church family. There's exegetical preaching where it's like, yeah, or exegeticals, verse by verse, topicals where we take topics, we find scripture for it, and some people are like, that's the wrong way to preach. Ah, Jesus did that, so give people a break. Like, you've got your styles, some pastors have their styles, and some pastors unfortunately make it seem like their style is the right way, causing disunity in the church. Let's have none of it. We're unified in Jesus. Not the preaching style, not the worship style, not our political preferences, not our doctrinal stances, our theological stances. Like, churches, in my observation and in my own heart, church family, I'm continually trying to bring this to God. I'm like, God, would you tear down the walls that I build where I try to find unity by people who are like me and think like me? What I really want in my heart of hearts is uniformity, not unity. Unity is birthed out of diversity. Unity is a, is a heart posture. Unity is what Jesus is praying for that they would be unified, that they would be one, that they would see their identity as sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters of one another, not that they would see their identity as Reformed Christians or Arminian Christians, like we're Calvinists, we're Arminians, or we're Charismatic, or we're Cessationists, or we're Egalitarians, or we're Complementarians. So all the people who believe this theological category or this theological category let's separate and and i think it just grieves the heart of god it's like what are you guys doing did you forget my words my prayer father would they be one would they be one as you and i are one make them one his disciples who he prays for in verses 6 through 20 they're incredibly diverse And he doesn't say, change all your diversity, wipe out your diversity, and become the same, become a uniform community. No, he says, have unity, have love, have grace, have charity, have compassion towards one another. That's real unity. Sometimes we separate into social stances, right? Like, do you believe critical race theory, or are you absolutely not critical race theory person? What what do you think about affirming the LGBT community? Yes or no? Are you woke? Watch out for those woke people. And it's either like, yeah, I want you to be woke, or if you're anywhere near woke, I'm concerned about you. I've I've got some red flags. Right among the body of Christ. You a Fox News person or a CNN person? And it just, it goes on and on and on and on. And church family, I think we need to do some repenting around this. Like God the Father welcomes us into his presence. Jesus is in his presence. Here expressing his heart. His prayer reveals what he wants for us. And what he wants for us is unity. So I think we need to look at Jesus sometimes and just say, Jesus, would you forgive us? We have not reflected your heart. I have sought unity around secondary issues, whether it be political, theological, stylistic, philosophical, social issues, and I repent. I want to find unity in you with my brothers and sisters, not around a denominational creed or a social stance or a preferred religious practice. Unity is birthed out of diversity as we peer into our union with God the Father. As Jesus says, verse 23, I in them, that's our unifier. 
that God the Father, through the work of Jesus in the presence of the Holy Spirit, is in us. Again, as the book of Colossians says, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved them. Pray for unity, fight for unity, because that's what Jesus wants for us. Number two, the third thing that, this, that his prayer reveals, or the second thing that his prayer reveals here is that he wants our presence. He wants our presence. Look at verse 24. So after praying about our unity, he says, Father, I desire. Love that word desire there. It's wants, it's longings, it's will. This is like in Jesus' heart. Okay, so if you're to say, what does God want from me? Well, look at the prayer of Jesus. He wants unity. He wants our humility, which will produce unity. He wants us to look at our union with him, our baptism with him, which will produce unity. Number two, he, just, he wants us. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, and remember, he's praying specifically for future followers. That would be me, that would be you. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So here in this prayer, we've talked about this over the last couple weeks, Jesus is, is, is preparing himself and his disciples to ascend back to heaven. This is the night before he's crucified. This is his departing prayer, his departure prayer. He's preparing his own heart and his disciples for his death and his eventual departure. And so he, he's physically, in his physical presence, he's going to die. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. He's going to walk among the disciples for 40 days, and then he's going to ascend to heaven, no longer be physically present with the disciples. And upon thinking about that, Jesus' prayer, his heart's desire is to be with us. He wants our presence, like physical presence. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. Church family, let this minister to you this morning. Jesus longs to be with you in person, in flesh. He wants to have you at the family dinner table. And this is a really symbolic thing. Jesus, just before this, in John chapter 13, they're having the, the, the Passover supper. And John 13 doesn't record this, but the other gospels record this, that as Jesus is having the Passover meal with his disciples, they're, they're reclining at table. They're having this intimate fellowship with one another. The other gospels, it records Jesus saying, I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. He's eager, he's excited to be at that table with the disciples. And then he says, as he gives them the communion elements, he says that he won't partake of the fruit of the vine, the cup again, until he's with the disciples in paradise. Jesus is actually abstaining from having communion wine until, and I don't know how this works, if it's like upon our death, we enter heaven and he starts having communion wine with us, or until all of us are in heaven, until he returns or calls all of us home. I don't know how that works, but Jesus is abstaining from having communion wine until he's with you in person because he wants to be with you in person. He wants to sit at that table at the marriage supper of the Lamb with you and with me in person. Like, think about our life growing up at table. 
tables, right? Some of you, uh, you remember the kids' table at the family Thanksgiving or Christmas meal. And then graduating to the adult table, right? There's significance to being at a table. Which one do you want to be at? I don't know. Like sometimes you graduate to the adult table and you're like, man, I want to go back over there. I'm sick of this political conversation. They're just talking about weird stuff. That's awesome. And I mean, when you're a kid, you're like, I want to get to the adult table. They're probably talking about cool stuff. They're not. And there's some significance to this. Like being at the table. You walk into middle school, lunchroom. Oh, just tables. Do I belong? Does anyone want me? Am I going to sit alone? Remember these anxieties that some of us felt? Some of our kids are feeling right now? This is significant. And then, and then we grow up, right? And you're either hosting a meal or you're going over to a parent's house or a friend's house or an, aunt, or an uncle's house and you're like, man, is weird Uncle Jim or Aunt Jill going to be there and I hope I'm not stuck at their table? No offense, Jim or Jill, if you're here. You know? Or maybe you're weird Jim or Jill. Here's the reality. In God's family, nobody is weird Uncle Jim or Aunt. Well, personality-wise, they might be. That doesn't change anything about how God feels about them. And you might be that person. You might be dealing with self-hatred and self-loathing and feeling alone. Like, nobody wants me. I don't even know if anyone actually wants me at their table. You know what? Jesus wants you at his table. His prayer. Look at it. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they... That, that they also whom you have given me, that they may be with me where I am. Jesus is longing, he's yearning, he's desiring to be with you. Regardless of what anyone else in the world thinks about you or, or what you think about yourself, Jesus longs to be with you in your physical presence and have you at his table. And so some of you, I think, need to hear that this morning. You may feel unlovely or unloved, and I, I, I just plead with you to hear this. Jesus loves you. He wants you. He welcomes you. He desires to be with you. Some of you may be like, yeah, all these other people are undesirable, unlovely, unwanting, and you might need to hear this as a correction, saying, if Jesus wants Uncle Jim or Aunt Jill at his table, then maybe I need to check my heart attitude and think about how I'm viewing other people. And, and if Jesus invites them and longs for them to be at his table, God, would you change my heart so that I would invite them, I would, in, I, I would long to be with them in their presence. And this is part of the unity piece, right? It ties together. Our unity is found in our baptism into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, our union with Him. And then our union at the table, like that's one of the reasons why we take communion every week at Park Community Church, to remind us that we're united in Jesus. Not all these secondary things. And, and these tie together. The symbolic nature of Jesus welcoming us into His presence at his table, upon ascending to heaven, one of his, the things that Jesus is most sad about is that he has to wait to be in physical relationships with his sons and his daughters that he deeply loves and desires to be with. Isn't that amazing? A couple verses to help us just experience this. Flip a page over to the right. John chapter 14, this is nothing new. Jesus has already been talking about this. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. 
In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? He wants our presence. He ascends to heaven to prepare a place for his disciples. I go to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, and if I go and I prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. Look at Revelation chapter 21. It's on page 1041. Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This, again, is John, the author of this gospel, the one who recorded the words and teachings and miracles of Jesus in the gospel of John. Here he has a vision at the end of his life. It's known as the book of Revelation. And part of this vision, he sees this consummation. He sees when we get to be in the physical presence of God again. And Revelation 19 is cool because he talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb when we'll sit at this table and we'll have this feast with Jesus and he'll drink the communion wine again with us. And then Revelation 21, it's just beautiful, verses 1 through 4. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven for God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Physical union, physical presence, what Jesus desires and longs for. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is Jesus' heart for us, that we would be in his presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, no more sin or the effects of sin. Amen? This is what Jesus wants for us. And then third thing in this prayer is that he just wants our good. Flip back to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verses 25 and 26. He says, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, and we've talked some about that, like there's this cosmic worldview, there's, there's the peoples of the world who don't know God as he truly is, and then there's the followers of Jesus who are getting to know God, Yahweh, for who he really is through the person and the work and the ministry and the words and the miracles of Jesus. He says, though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. My disciples, my followers, they're they're getting to know you. They're trusting me. They're trusting that I reveal you. He says, I know you, and these know know that you have sent me. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus uses this word know quite a bit. John, the author, has captured this word quite a bit throughout the Gospel of John. It's this deep, intimate knowledge. Jesus' prayer here is that you and I would have an experiential knowledge of God, not just a head knowledge. We've talked about this a ton, so I don't want to beat this point this morning, but if you haven't been here, it's like, uh, I heard the Vikings were bad, and then I watched the game yesterday. Right? Head knowledge? And if you, like, T-voted or something, haven't watched, is that still a thing? They lost. They gave up 21 points yesterday in the fourth quarter and lost. Right? Am I right? Yeah, okay. So you knew they were bad. You watched the game. You experienced that they were bad. Okay? Or, or like, I've heard that the worship at Park Community is great. 
And then I came and I experienced it, and it's true. I heard that these people are friendly and warm, and I walked in that building, and someone gave me eye contact and smiled at me, and I experienced it. This is what knowledge is. It's not just head knowledge, oh, I know these things to be true cognitively. It's I know this experientially. Jesus wants us to know God experientially and relationally. He wants our good as a result of this. And then he talks about love here. This is the word agape. Part of the meaning of agape means goodwill, like willing good for another person. That's one of the deepest meanings of the word agape. He says, I made known to them your name. Jesus is making known to us who God is. And I will continue to make it known that the agape, this goodwill and this sacrifice, which you have loved me with, this this goodwill that God has towards the Father, may be in us and Jesus in us. He wants our good. He wants relationship with us. Jesus has goodwill towards you and towards me, and he takes sacrificial action towards you and towards me. Our, our good is found in our union with him, our unity with one another, our eventual eternity in his physical presence. And there's kind of this two-way sacrifice that is happening here. When Jesus talks about this word agape, love, I, I came that they would know you, God, that they would have this experiential knowledge of you and that they would experience your love, that they would have your goodwill, that they would have your agape love, your sacrifice. There's this two-way thing that agape works. It's like, like, a, like a marriage. Both parties have to give, right? Both parties, like healthy marriages or at least marriages that are striving towards health, they have to have goodwill towards one another. Any relationship. If you're not married, think about a relationship with a, with, a, with a roommate, with a coworker, with a family member, with a friend. Like when you lose goodwill towards one another, the relationship falls apart. So here Jesus is saying, I have this goodwill. I want them to experience the goodwill that God has towards me, the goodwill that I have towards you, God, and I want them to experience that as well. It's this two-way thing. It's initiated by God. Here's, here's how it works for us. God's agape love for us is initiated by him. He makes the first move. The Bible tells us that we love, we have the ability to agape because he agaped, he loves us. John 3.16, we read it this morning, it says, For God so loved, God so agape the world that he gave He had goodwill towards us, so he gave his one and only son. The Bible also says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is his goodwill moving towards us because he wants good for us. And then this is reciprocated by us as we're filled with the Holy Spirit. We give our lives back in sacrifice to God in service to others. So as we close down this morning, as we, as we continue to move towards Christmas Day and being reminded, I know we're looking at like Jesus' parting words here rather than his birth. I think it's so significant for us to keep in mind that God in flesh came to walk among us to grant us unity. 
to establish a physical presence among us that we would then long for in the future and then to show us what goodwill looks like in action. Say, this is what I want for you. This is my heart for you. This is my desire for you. Let me read John chapter 20 verses, uh, John chapter 17 verses 20 through 26 again as we close out and head towards communion. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as you loved them. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I them. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table this morning, as we eat the elements, as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, I pray that it would be a symbolic reminder that you are in us the hope of glory. I pray that we would be reminded that we are welcome at your table and that you desire us there. I pray that our coming to the table would be a reminder of our unity with one another that's found by our union with you. And I pray that we would receive your sacrifices, your act of goodwill towards us. And in doing so, that we would find new life and that we would overflow with the joy of the Lord. For your glory, for our good, and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.